So uh, I remember this one class I had in seminary, and it was um, it was like a pastoral it was like a pastoral kind of ministry class basically, and you would go and it's really just a it's very chill class. It's one of the most chill classes in seminary. You just kind of go and you listen to this old like pastor man just kind of talk about ministry. Right, and and everybody loved it, right? Because seminary is pretty rigorous. You know, you have to study like languages. You got to learn Greek and Hebrew. You know, you have to learn like theology. You have to do a ton of reading. And then there would be this one class where you just go, and this old pastor would just like talk about you know church and his experiences and things like that. And so I remember I was in this class, and a lot of times you would spend time just talking in in small group. And so I would be talking with some other guys, and we were having this discussion about men's ministry. It's like, what have been your experiences with men's ministry? And there's one guy, he shares, he goes, at my church, they used to have this men's ministry called Maximum Manhood, right? And already I was like, that, that doesn't sound right, right? <laughs> like that, that sounds wrong. And I was like, what are you, you know, what did you guys do? And he's like, we went to the beach, we ate meat, right? We like cooked up some meat, we ate it, and then they like, ran up and down the beach, like like in Rocky, you know, when, when Rocky runs with Apollo Creed, like up and down. It's like they did that. They, like, raced up the beach. They did, like, burpees, and then they did push-ups, and then they went to the ocean, and they started doing, like, those, those like, seal push-ups, like, in the ocean while the water is hitting them, so it's, like, extra difficult. And I'm like... Like what? <laughs> like what is this, right? This is a church men's ministry, okay? And then they swam out into the ocean, and they were like racing. They swam out into the ocean to this thing, and then they swam back. And as they're swimming back, this guy, my friend, who is—he's kind of like slightly, you know, he's like slight of frame. He's not like super athletic. I'll just put it that way, right? So he's like he's swimming out there. He's swimming back, and he can't make it back. So he starts drowning in the ocean at this men's ministry outing. And the lifeguard has to come out. Literally, the lifeguard comes out, saves him, and, like, is doing CPR on him. And he, you know, thank God, like, he survives and everything. And he's telling the story. And all of us there, we're kind of listening to this story. And we're just like, like, we have this face. I have this face. Like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of in my life. Like, that's not... That's not men's ministry. Like, what is that? Like, what in the world is that? And I, I bring this up because I feel like a lot of times in the church, we're still prone to this caricaturized view of manhood and womanhood. Right? And as much as we don't maybe want to say that that's what we think, and as much as I think we don't want to allow, and, and this, this was a long time ago, right? This was back when I was in the seminary. This is probably like over 10 years ago when, I, when, when we were talking about this. And I think things have changed. There are new kind of cultural norms for what it means to be a man and a woman. And yet I do feel as though oftentimes those things more strongly dictate what we think about what it means to be a man and a woman than what the Bible has to say. And so, guys, okay, I'm just going to be honest. A couple things. One, I've, like, 
10 pages of notes today, which is like a lot okay, compared to what my normal, like a normal sermon is maybe like five pages. So I have like about double. Um, two, beginning part of this is going to be super like academic because I, I want to typically, and actually, you know what? I'm just going to show this. This is, a, this is a picture that shows kind of the main Christian views on this subject. Um, over here, you have feminism, and this is Christian feminism, so not maybe secular feminism. This is uh, egalitarianism, complementarianism, and then what's called patriarchy um, for the role of men and women. And then if you see right here these brackets for biblical Christianity, kind of half of what's in patriarchy and half of what's in what's called Christian feminism, I would say is outside of biblical Christianity. So it's just completely outside, right? And then these two in the middle are typically what we talk about are kind of the only views that we really talk about. I've never really, I don't generally talk about these outside views because they're kind of really outside, but we are going to talk about them today. And then we will talk about these views and just, this is what we believe here, complementarianism. That's what we always preach. That's what we teach in, you know, like marriage class and like all the kind of things that we do. But we'll, we'll talk about what that means for the home and for the church. So it's going to be a little bit more, honestly, just like theologically academic than it typically is on a Sunday. I just want to tell you guys that up front. Um, and I'll say, so I have to say even a couple more things before we even get into it. Okay, one, there's something called a closed hand and an open hand in theology, right? This is one of those days I really wish I had one of these mics to... <laughs> you know the but um so a closed head in theology is typically things that we don't compromise right and we don't negotiate and we don't even debate about like trini- the trinity you know or like the divinity of that that Jesus was god you know or salvation by faith you know by grace through faith like those kinds of things we don't really debate like it seems like that is utterly clear in scripture those are the the main points right and then there's some other things that we would say we hold in kind of this open hand of theology meaning it's what we believe in it's our conviction things like baptism like the way that we baptize people you know we believe in believers baptism full immersion baptism right but i used to be presbyterian right and i went to presbyterian church where they believe something else completely Infant baptism, you know, you do the little sprinkling thing, like that kind of stuff. And those are different views. I would say they're both, you know, within kind of the realm of Christianity. One day we're going to all go to heaven, and we're going to be like, oh, shoot, you know, you were right or I was right or something. And I don't think it's going to matter. Like, you're not going to, you're not not saved if you believe one of those. It's just, it's like not 100% clear in Scripture. And so there are debates about some of those things. And, And this debate falls under that category i'd say there are people certainly who are egalitarian i have plenty of friends you know and and other theologians whom i respect that hold that view but i disagree with it but it's fine right? like like not it's fine i mean we you know we have our biblical conviction and i'm gonna make that case today why it matters you know, because it's not just a matter of what I'm hoping. This is what I'm hoping at the end of it. It's not just a matter of right and wrong, kind of like, oh, this is right and this is wrong, and I want to be right. It's more of a matter of stepping in faith into what God has designed the way He's designed it, right? So that it's not just a matter of right and wrong, but it's more a matter of like seeing the beauty of God, the way that He has created things. And so, that's my hope. We'll see how we do on time and how much we can cover. 
but I'm hoping that you will have at least some understanding of these views today by the end of today. So the main text we're going to look, we're going to look at a bunch of texts, but the main text we're going to look at is this one, okay? Uh, 1 Timothy 2. If you guys have your Bibles, why don't we go in and open them up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 8. Really the main part, though, is going to start in verse 11. This is one of those passages, by the way, that pastors don't like preaching on. <laughs> but because um, it's like a controversial text, especially on a Sunday. It's like something you'd go over at a Bible study. But um, I'm all over the place already. But by the way, okay, we're in this series, right, called Dear God. The next few weeks is going to be a little bit like this. Because we've covered some more personal stuff, like personal struggles in the faith. But the next few weeks, we're actually going to cover some of these, what are called theological distinctives. And a lot of it's going to be, like, controversial. But we have to do it, right? Because, and there's a couple reasons. One is where our church is at right now, we need to learn this stuff and, like, know it well. Right? Um partly because where we're at in our, like, age and life stage, and partly because where we are at as a church. And, 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 and that's why these kinds of things are really important, it's especially right now. Like, it's always important, obviously, but especially right now. And so, okay, having said all that, I was like, 20 disclaimers, but let's get into the text, okay? So this is First Timothy 2. Verse 8, this is God's word. It says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let's read on verse 11. This is verse 11. It says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman who was, de- was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay. So let's, let's stop there for a second. Now, it's going to be a while before we get into what I think about this text, like what our view is, because I want to talk about all the other views. Right? So... We're going to start over here, okay? Patriarchy. Now, this is what patriarchy would say. This is the kind of patriarchal view of women and how, how women should kind of operate. They would say all women must be under the authority of a man at all times. Okay, so part of that comes from 1 Corinthians eleven three. They would say when you're young, you're under the authority of your father. And then when you're older, you know, if you get married, you're under the authority of your husband. And if your husband dies, then over someone else, and then eventually you'll be under the authority of your son. This is kind of the view of patriarchy, right? And this is a quote. (laughs) This is a quote from Martin Luther, okay? I'm going to read this and guarantee, (laughs) like, I'm going to cringe even as I'm reading this, okay? But I'm going to read it anyway. It says, men have broad and large chests and small, narrow hips and more understanding than women who have but small and narrow breasts and broad hips, to the end they should remain at home, sit still, keep house, and bear and bring up children. That's Martin Luther, the, like one of the fathers of the faith, right? Like the Reformation guy, like said this, right? And I mean, look, 
Martin Luther, right, was a genius, like in many ways, and super duper wrong, obviously, about this. This is a horrible statement. This is just a, this is just an outright terrible statement. Martin Luther said some other weird stuff, by the way. He had, there were parts of his theology that were like really bad, but obviously we don't throw out everything that he said because he had some bad theology. So, you know, the patriarchal Christian would argue like some good things, right? The good things they would argue is that family is the foundation of society. Now, I would agree with that. Family is the foundation. That's, that's the kind of foundational unit. A lot of times when the family falls apart, that's where society falls apart. And we can see that that's true even in our society. But what's the problem is that in patriarchy, the idea of male authority or headship is totally overemphasized and abused, basically. Right? It's taken to this quite frankly ridiculous extreme where it's led to, unfortunately, some terrible things for women, like subjugation of women and oppression of women in history. So patriarchy under the patriarchy. Now, I'll say, people hold this view, by the way, today, still. There are many people who hold this view, I would say, but a ton of it is outside of, like, a lot of it is just basically sexist and misogynist and outside, clearly outside of what the Bible teaches, uh, but what patri- you know, the, the patriarchal view would say is that women in the church, women couldn't vote, cannot lead, cannot be ordained, cannot teach or do any kind of public teaching like leading a Bible study or a prayer meeting or anything of that sort, can't lead worship, can't pe- speak publicly on, in, in, you know, in any form on a Sunday gathering. So that's, that's kind of the patriarchal view. So just super wrong, basically, okay? But they would look at that text you know, this text in Timothy, and they, they would use that as the basis for this understanding. Like, hey, look what Paul says. You know, women shouldn't do any of these kinds of things because that's what's in the text. Now, um, so this would also be one of the main texts that they would derive that from. I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And so there is, seems to be here, there is some kind of headship that's presented Head of every man is Christ. Head of a wife is her husband. Head of the Christ, uh, the head of Christ is God. Okay, so there seems to be some kind of, kind of a structure set up, leadership structure set up here, and that some misinterpretations of this text has led to that patriarchal view. Now, here's a here's the Christian feminist view. Uh, there's a woman named Kat, Catherine Bushnell who is, who was alive in the late nineteenth uh, and early twentieth centuries. Now. By the way, this is like an awesome woman. She was like an anti-trafficking activist. You know, she did amazing things for kind of um, helping women in the church. But I would say also there were some other things that maybe were not, uh, that I don't 100% agree with. Now, so these are some things, just so you get an understanding of kind of her view. Uh, we would rather believe that the expositor is mistaken, that from the that the very term gospel, quote-unquote good news, proclaims, oppression to women. We would rather believe that the expositor is mistaken than that the very term gospel or good news proclaims oppression to women. So what she's saying is, and this was part of Catherine Bushnell's core belief. She believed that because men were the ones who basically wrote the Bible and interpreted the Bible, there was this kind of sexist, you know, male thing that was inherent in the Bible. Okay, so she's basically saying, rather than believe that that's actually what God's message was, 
I want to believe that these men who like kind of transmitted and interpreted the Bible were wrong. So that's her, that's like her point of view that she came from and she learned, you know, original languages and she wanted to try to reinterpret scripture essentially. And then this is the second thing she said. Um, and she said many things, but I just kind of picked a couple. Uh, women can never be matured as a useful instrument in God's hands or an efficient servant of his church until she comes to understand that she is not her own. She is bought with a price, and it is neither her duty nor her privilege to give herself away to any human being in marriage or in any other way. So now there's some level of, like, I don't totally disagree with what she's saying. Do you know what I mean? Like, like on the on the base level, like kind of almost at face value, it's like what she's saying makes sense. She's saying that you know, for any woman or man, you belong to Jesus, right? That is the that is kind of the core thing. But what she means at the end when she says it's neither her duty nor privilege to give herself away to any human being, she's talking about marriage, and she's saying you know that's like like basically being given away to a man in marriage or being united like in that way, is bad. Right? Like that's a bad thing because the woman is giving up some of her autonomy. Now, uh, so the, the Christian feminist view would be that um, essentially, and I'll give kind of the most charitable definition, the definition of Christian feminism is to seek to define and defend the equal rights of women in all spheres of life, whether politically, economically, socially, or spiritually. And that definition, by the way, I have no problem with. The problem comes when that's a charitable definition because it leaves out the fact that oftentimes Christian feminism is hostile towards masculinity, towards the idea of masculinity. So a Christian feminist would say that anything distinct between men and women is a hostile act. So if I were to even say that men and women are different, right, like there's differences, there are distinctions between men and women— they would say, that's hostile. You're being hostile right now. So most Christian feminists, part of the reason that it's outside of Christianity is because uh, they would be skeptical about the Bible, right? What's happening in society trumps what the Bible says. And so most Christian feminists are going to be far left on social issues, um, there would be marriage for anyone, they would be pro-abortion, they would be pro-gender fluidity, they would, you know, a lot of them, if you go on their blogs or their website, they refer to God as a woman. You know, so a lot of these kinds of things come out of this Christian feminist thinking. Um, they would say men and women are equal in the image of God, which is clearly right. That is clearly right biblically. But it seems that there's an overemphasis on women such that there should be no distinction at all. And in fact, gender doesn't even matter. It's, you know, it's a social construct. It's not something that's really, that really matters in the Bible. And so you see kind of Christian feminists are on one side, um, patriarchal views on the other side, both overemphasizing, I would say, one gender over the other. Now that brings us to the egalitarian view. Okay, now uh, the egalitarian view, this is something said by uh, N.T. Wright, who's like, I read a lot of his books. This dude's a smart dude, right? And he says, the first person to take the message of Jesus to others is Mary Magdalene. That is so counterintuitive in the ancient world. Here's the first person to tell someone that Jesus is alive, and it's a woman, and not just any woman. It's Mary Magdalene. 
This is God choosing what is weak to shame the strong, and it seems to me in the resurrection there's a radical revaluation of the role of women. And so N.T. Wright, by the way, I don't disagree with this at all. And N.T. Wright would say, though, that on the basis of this, uh, the role, the kind of distinction between men and women changes after the resurrection. Now, there are some reasons for that. Um, I'm going to try to just kind of lay out the egalitarian view. What they would say is, so this, in Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He would say uh, that this kind of becoming one flesh nullifies the distinction between men and women, right? And then this, after the fall, when he says to the women, I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What he would say is that that statement there shows that male headship is a result of sin. And then he would say, this is from the New Testament. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And they would say that eradicates any distinction between men and women. Now, about the text that we went over today, what they would say is, when it says, let a, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. Now, they would take that and they would say, what that is, is it's cultural. It's a cultural thing, not a universal thing. So uh, what they would say is this is cultural, not universal. Now, um, so again, like, I have a lot of friends who are egalitarian. I totally respect that position. But I also think it's not correct. And this is the reason. Okay, this text, now if you compare it to this text, Right? So this is a kind of a cultural thing that we take as cultural, right? Because it says, likewise, also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. So some people, they take this, right? A lot of egalitarians, they'll take this right here, and then they'll say, oh, well, how come you don't say that women can't have braided hair or, well, gold, or wear gold or pearls in the church, but then you'll say that women shouldn't, like, teach on the pulpit on a Sunday, because that's part of the complementarian view. Now, so the reason is, right here when it says this, it explains it too, right? Because it says respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Now, that I would still say applies, right? Women should, that, that's just, that just makes sense, right? Now, whether this is the actual thing or not, that is culturally conditioned because what is with Mo respectable apparel and modesty in our culture might be different from culture thousands of years ago. So that part can be kind of interpreted that way. But then it says, but with what is proper for women who prof profess godliness with good works. So again, it's explained also why, that, why to do that. Right? Now, if you look at this text, it says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For, so then he gives his explanation why. And he doesn't say anything cultural, right? He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So he goes all the way back to creation, and he says, okay, this is the way that God designed it, even 
before, even before sin. Right? And it's what's called a, it's, it's something, it's an argument from primogeniture, you know, which is like, you don't have to remember that. But it's like the idea that God set up this system in a certain way. God created Adam. God told Adam what to do. Right? And oh, by the way, after the fall, God doesn't say, Eve, what did you do? He says, Adam, what did you do? <laughs> right? Like, Adam, this is your fault because it was your job to have responsibility. So here's the complementarian view. Okay, and this is from Tim Keller. The Tim Keller, right? Um, On the one hand, women are clearly partners with men in ministry. Women were ministry leaders. They were active in evangelism, discipleship, education, mercy ministry, leading in house churches, as well as praying and prophesying in public worship. It appears from this that there are no ministry gifts nor ministries that are forbidden to women, and yet Paul draws some limits. Right? So, and I would say this because egalitarians would say, They would highlight the Old Testament. They would say, like, Deborah served as a judge, and Miriam was a prophetess, and there are women evangelists mentioned in the New Testament. There are women leading house churches. Priscilla is signaled out by Paul as a fellow worker in the church. Now, and that's true, and that's that's good. That's great. I think the idea is that women can do anything, and that's kind of Tim Keller's point here. But then he says, and yet, Paul seems to be showing that there are some limits because God has designed it to be a certain way. Now, uh, so complementarians, when they look at these passages, so this is, is part of Paul's argument in 1 Timothy 2. He says, Adam was created first and then Eve. This, when when. We look at this, and it says, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your, chain and p- your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. This, this wording actually matches exactly this wording here from Genesis 4-7. Uh, this is about Cain and Abel, right? And it says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And it's the idea that sin wants to conquer, kind of conquer us. Rule over us. It's desire, right? When it's taught, when God is talking to Cain and saying, you know, why don't you just do what's right? Abel's doing what's right. You're not doing what's right. And sin's crouching at your door, so be careful because it wants to conquer you. It's saying that this sinful desire is the same as the sinful desire that will be, that women will have, will struggle with with their husbands. And then for husbands, it says, he shall rule over you. Now, part of that, is the idea that that's the way that God set it up. It will be a frustration for women. This is God's judgment on Eve. So that will be frustrating to her. And then part of it will be will manifest itself in sinfulness with men that they will take advantage of that headship and abuse or dominate women, which is also sinful. Where am I? I have so many notes. I don't know where I am right now. Okay. Let me see what I have here. Okay, good. So what does it look like in the church? So I'm going to talk about two things, okay? This complementarian view, what does it look like in the church, and then what does it look like kind of at home or in our lives? Um, so I'm going to say just a couple things. Like, So egalitarians, they, you know, they bring up all those things that women did, and I think that's awesome, right? It means women can do all those things, 
They're certainly capable of doing all those things. God has designed them to do all those things, you know, to be a judge and a prophetess and to lead worship and to lead prayer and all these things. Um, but I will say that there are two positions that women never held in Scripture, right? One is there has never been a woman who is part of the Levitical priesthood, right? So that God-ordained position to be the representative between uh, God and his people, there were no women ever to serve in that position. And then when Jesus came, he selected 12 male disciples, right? So certainly, and, and Jesus did a whole bunch of stuff. Like, so some people might think, well, maybe he didn't get a, maybe he didn't select a woman because, you know, he was scared of the culture or, you know, he didn't want to make waves or something like that. But if you know anything about Jesus, it doesn't seem like that's a good reason, right? Like, why would Jesus do that? Jesus doesn't seem to be scared of, of kind of the, the zeitgeist or like what's happening in the culture, that's, that doesn't seem to be th- something that he thinks about, right? Um, or it could, be, it could be that maybe Jesus thought women were inferior. Now, I certainly don't think that's the case. There's, there are all, everything that Jesus preaches is against that. And oh, by the way, women were a, a part of Jesus' ministry beginning to end. And by the way, when he resurrects from the dead, the first person that he goes to is a woman, Mary. She's the first deliverer of the gospel, right? That the tomb is empty, he's risen. And so it doesn't seem like that's the reason either. Maybe Jesus just sees that this is, he understands this to be God's design for men and women. And that's, the, that's why the church is built that way. And that's kind of the complementarian view. Now, okay, when we talk about it in church and in the home, I'm hoping that we will see why that's a good thing. Okay, so, so here is kind of just some things. And really, there are, um, you know, I, I borrowed this from another church. But there are other statements, in fact, that I, you know, wholeheartedly agree with. And just, we're not going to go over it here today. But if you would, like, like that or something, email me. If you have any questions about anything we're talking about today, please email me or please talk to me. Like, I'd love to... Again, this, I have 10 pages of notes right here. I have like 100 pages of notes, you know, like on my computer that I had to cut out constantly. In fact, I was going to go over more verses today, but I just, there's no time, right? So if you want more, like I could just go in, we could go really in depth on all this stuff. But I just want to say these few things, okay, about the church. Uh, one, we affirm that both men and women are, are needed and necessary for the health and ministry of the church. Okay, we deny that church can flourish without brotherly and sisterly partnerships. So a church cannot function without both men and women. Both are needed, both are necessary, and they cannot and a church cannot function without like relationships between those men and women that are not like romantic. Secondly, we affirm that the role of elder is reserved for qualified men. We deny that the role of elder being withheld from women diminishes the importance or influence of women in the church. Now, this is how complementarians view 1 Timothy 2, that what Paul is talking about there in that passage is the public teaching and authority of a woman in the church, right? So that doesn't mean, like, teaching anything, like teaching a Bible study, leading a prayer meeting, leading worship, any of those kinds of things. There are plenty of of examples of that in Scripture. But Paul is putting this one particular restriction here. And if you read on in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3 is about elders and the qualifications for elders. 
it seems clear from that passage that that was intended to be a male position. And then it talks about the qualifications for deacons. Now, part of the reason this doesn't come up a lot in our church is because we don't have any elders. Like, our structure right now is not set up such that we are following exactly this kind of biblical model of leadership. Part of that is, like, because we're young. But we are probably soon going to be stepping into that kind of model of leadership. And so it's important that we understand these kinds of biblical distinctions. Now, one other thing I have to say right now is that, you know, I totally respect, like, the egalitarian view. The reason that I don't, I don't, like, adhere to it is because I don't see it make sense biblically. Like, I cannot see the biblical argument there, right? Like, I, I get how they could get, and they do some kind of basically exegetical maneuvering. Like, they do some kind of stuff where it's like, well, what about this, and what about this, and they bring up these kind of things. But just from the clear argument that's in Scripture, I don't think it really makes sense. In fact, some, some egalitarians would say that Paul himself, because he's using Genesis, God's design, as the model— they would say Paul himself is misinterpreting Genesis. And I think, like, once you're there, it's like, why, do you, why would you even trust the Bible then? Like, if Paul can't interpret the Bible correctly, who is an author of the Bible, one of the authors of the Bible, then you just, you don't have anything then, right? Just throw the whole Bible out then. So from there, I see that kind of social things have influenced, I think, the prominence of Scripture Here's the third one. Uh, we affirm that complementarianism rightly practiced will lead to the recognizable flourishing of both sexes, men and women. We deny any version of complementarianism or theological position that leads to the subjugation, abuse, or neglect of any woman or man, for that matter. Uh, we strongly denounce any distorted view of Scripture that contributes to this. So anything that leads to that kind of abuse or domination or like, that's wrong. That's got to be, that's outside of Scripture. It denies other fundamental parts of Scripture that are clearly stated. Again, I, you know, I got I to move on. But if, there's, if you have any kind of questions or anything, please, please do not hesitate. Right? Let me, um, I'm going to just, so let me just talk about what I think it looks at, what, what this looks like or how it plays out in the home. Okay, so I'm just going to say something to kind of the four different groups of people represented, right? First, to single women. I just want to say some essentially affirming things. Okay, now this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway because I think it needs to be said. You don't need to wait for a man, and you don't need a man to be complete in any way, right? In any way, shape, or form, I will say some are called to marriage and some are called to singleness and there is incredible value and beauty and power in both, right? Singleness is a gift just as marriage is a gift as presented in scripture. And what I would say for this season, spend this season of your life and, and this season may be the rest of your life. But what I would say is spend this season of your life studying the word like deeply studying the word, developing good prayer habits, growing in your gifts, and encouraging regularly. And I'll, I'll, 
I will talk about why I think that's so important a little bit later when I talk to married women. But I think that's incredibly important. Now, and if this season is the rest of your life, I'll say this. You do need men in your life. Like, not a man. But you need men, like fatherly figures and brotherly figures in your life who you can interact with, who you can love and be loved by. And you do, well, there's one man you truly need, right? But that's Jesus himself. And he'll always be there for you as he has always been there for you. The single men. This I have to say to single men. I'm going to be less, be less affirming. Right? I'm going to be a little, more, a little more challenging. Men get a little more challenging message. Um, this, this is what I would say. Prepare yourself to love and lead in your life and in the church. Okay, prepare yourself to love and lead in your life and in the church. And this is a, this is a by the way for if you're dating, if you're a man and you're dating. If you have not committed yourself to the covenant of marriage, then you do not deserve her complete submission. Right? Like we talked about Ephesians 5, right, last week. That's within the covenant of marriage. Because that man has made that covenant and said, I'm going to be with you till I die, and nothing's going to change that. If you're not in that covenant, you don't deserve that yet. The best way, okay, for single men, the best way to prepare yourself to be a man is to grow in these things. Grow in the habit of learning maximally. Grow in the habit of learning maximally. Grow in the habit of confessing honestly and grow in the habit of serving regularly. Those are the things you should be focusing on. Right? Learn as much as you can. Like That means read the Bible. That means read other stuff. Read books. Read things by good Christian authors. Expand as much as you can your knowledge and grow in that. Confess honestly. And I have to say this to you because men grow out of this because they grow into the world and then grow out of this, which is to confess that's what's going to keep you humble. It's going to keep your gigantic ego down. <laughs> and serve regularly because that's what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. So get used to it. Um, and I'm going to say this one last thing for all singles. It's hard to be single. Okay? And that's, that's like, that's okay. Like, you don't have to... You don't have to be like, because sometimes when we say stuff like this, and I realize, and I'm sorry if I've ever done this before, right? But sometimes you say stuff like this, like Jesus, like this kind of Jesus is all you need, right? If you're single, you don't need marriage and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, it's like, that's true. It's, it's a hundred, like theologically, it's hundred percent true, right? But emotionally, you might feel like, oh, that means if I ever feel lonely or if I ever feel sad that I'm not with somebody, I'm doing something wrong. And like, that's just not true. Right? Like, if you just feel sad sometimes, it's like, that's the reality. Like, you shouldn't have to be like, and this is, by the way, for all the married people too, right? Don't be like trying to always kind of, you know, put this on single people. Like, oh, like, well, you just need to, you know, trust in Jesus or whatever. Or like, be trying to solve all their problems. Like, you know, well, I know this guy, you know, I know this girl. Like, oh, you can get with this. Like, sometimes, like, we just need to be like, dude, yeah, like, that's hard. That sucks sometimes. Like, we're just going to, like, love you and just be there for you, and it's okay for you to talk about that. And for single people, it's okay to talk about that. It's, no, it's nothing wrong with that. By the way, there's also nothing wrong with dating. There's nothing wrong with, like, going on an app if you're lonely and you want companionship. Like, those aren't wrong things. 
And, you know, one way or the other, God will love you completely, and he will comfort you always. Okay, so now I'm going to go to married men. Married men, okay, so two things, okay? I have a warning, and I have a challenge, right? Unfortunately, unfortunately, there's a type of male who would use these verses to keep his spouse afraid and disoriented and feeling like she's crazy. Now, unfortunately, so this is the warning to men, to married men. Do not abuse your headship. Never do that. Do not berate or belittle any woman, especially your wife. Don't do that. And if you do that, if you cross that line, because we're human, sometimes we're going to do it. One, don't think you're justified. Don't be like, oh, well, you know, I have a right or it's just I'm tired or like whatever. Don't do that. And two, confess quickly. Confess, ask for forgiveness, apologize, say I'm wrong, I did wrong, I'm sorry. Not like I just said it, say it like sincerely and, and, and ask for forgiveness. And don't feel like you deserve that forgiveness. Um, and even if you feel yourself, another, even if you feel yourself inching that way, like confess that quickly, like to your brothers. I'd be like, you know what? Like, I'm struggling with this. This is how I feel. Like, I feel like I'm going this way. And even be quick with that. Don't, like, let that fester and build up. Just be like, you know what? I feel like this is happening. Like, you guys need to pray for me or you guys need to keep me in check. So here's the challenge, okay? Here's the challenge. So for any of the wives in here, this part is not for you, right? So do not quote this to your husbands. Don't say it later, right? Just just let 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 me and let the Holy Spirit like just do the work right now. Don't even look at him. Don't do anything, all right? Just like just like look at your notes, look in your Bible or something, right? This is this is for the men. This is for your husbands. This part's not for you, okay? And brothers, I'm saying this in love, right? Lead in love. And when I say that, I don't mean lead with love. I mean lead in love like it's a competition of love and you better be leading in it. Endeavor through Christ and the Spirit to love her more than she loves you. Because that, that's, that's your job. That's how it's elucidated in Scripture. I mean, make it a game if it helps you, right? I know you guys are competitive. Like, if you need to make it some kind of game, if you need to just think about it that way, but don't think like I'm winning the game. Think I'm doing what I'm supposed to do in the game. Like, I'm just doing my role in the game because that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be sacrificing more. I, it should hurt me more. That's the, way it's, that's the way it's meant to be. When it says Christ in the church, that's what's pictured there. Right? When they, when they sinned, Right? Like when sin came into the world, God didn't say anything to Eve. He said, where are you, Adam? What happened? It's not incumbent on your wife to set the culture of your relationship or your family. It's not. Don't look at her. 
Don't whine about it. I mean, you know, you can vent and stuff, right? Like if you're with your brothers and you need to do that, that's fine. But don't be sitting there thinking like, oh, like what's going on? Like why isn't anything happening? Why do we talk like this? Like why is this the culture that's in our family? That's not her job. That's your job. It's your job to do that. If you don't respect her, don't expect her to respect you. It's not her job to set that example. Your role in marriage is to lovingly lead and care for her so that she can grow in Christ. Okay? If you're not in the word, don't act like you know something because you don't. Right? Don't, don't think that your extremely limited logic and experience in this world is worth something compared to the word of God. It's not close. And all of that stuff without God's word is mostly going to be biased and sinful and self-serving. So what I'm saying is check yourself right first. So if you're not asking yourself, what am I doing to lovingly lead her toward Jesus? Then again, you have no right to ask, like, why is she so anxious? Why doesn't she respect me? Like, why are we doing these things? Why are we doing that, those things? I would say, what are you doing? Are you, are you lovingly leading her toward Jesus? Because that's your job. Like you sitting, you know, sitting there, like she's, she's pouring out her concerns, right? And you're sitting there playing a game, and all you say is, don't worry about it? Like that's not helpful. That'll help nobody, right? When did that ever help anybody in the history of the universe, right? Ignoring what she's saying and then just being like, don't worry about it. It's your job to continuously lead her to security in Christ, not in money, not in your plans, not in whatever you're going to do. And if you are in the word and you think, I need to grow in this way, like, like we need to grow in this way as a family, then you better tell her. That's also your job. That's what headship means. Right? It's not this, oh, you listen to me, you respect me, you submit to me, you do this and this and that. Right? Headship for you doesn't mean anything for her. It's about what you got to do. You got to love, you got to lead, you got to provide. Because when you and your wife stand before God, like when, it's, when that's the grouping, then God's going to look at you and say, what did you do? Now, it will cost, I'll give you this, just this, because I know I'm just hammering it right now, right? But I'll give you this little hope, all right, and this reminder, okay, because it's going to cause some conflict, but in the end, I guarantee this, she will respect you for it. She will love you for it. She will trust you more because of it. And both of you will grow in affection for God and his people and those around you. And you will live for something greater than yourselves. This is the way that God has designed it to be. But you got to step into that in faith. Now, married women, I have this encouragement. Definitely not going to say what I just said to the guys, right? Not in that way. Um, so I'm just going to share. I'm just going to share this this personal thing, okay? Um, so you know, most of you guys know, like you know, 
Bumi's pregnancies were terrible, right? Basically, for, for 16 to 18 months, you know, whatever, that time period of her life, those two babies, right, um, were like just terrible times, honestly. And when, when, when she was pregnant with Josiah and I, you know, I've sh- I shared like a couple weeks ago about like the medical kind of things and the scares that we had. But honestly, that was like a terrible time in our lives. I'll just be 100% honest with you guys, right? I'm going to keep it as close to 100 as I can keep it, you know, without, without saying anything confidential. But like, Boomy threw up like every day, okay? She threw, she threw up every day. She missed a ton of work. She missed church. You know, like, just, you know, think about how horrible that is, right? She's doing that every day. Boomy's mom had two strokes, like, in that period of time where we would, like, you know, we'd have, and then we went to the hospital. And she also used to help with our kids, but she can't really do that a lot anymore. Um, and there was a ton of, like, there was turmoil in the church. You know, some stuff happened with my parents. Uh, like, there was, like, leadership turnover. And there was, like, all this, you know, all of a sudden there was, like, criticism coming out of nowhere. And there were tons of times where in that, that period of time, I would just be like, like, I hate this, right? Like, boomy, I hate, I freaking, I hate this. Like, I just want to, I just want to die or I want to, I definitely want to quit. Like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Like, I just want to do a normal job where nobody cares. <laughs> like, like, nobody cares what my, like, nobody cares what I do. You know what I mean? Like, like, I'd rather do that. And that happened, like, every day for, for the long... And I'd be on the phone, like, late at nights, and she couldn't sleep, she'd be tired, and then, you know, we'd be dealing with stuff, like, all the time, right? And, you know, she she's basically bedridden for a lot of that time, so I would be, like, throwing out trash, you know, I'd be, like, cleaning the house, I'm, like, doing dishes or something, and literally in that moment, like, that moment, I'm thinking, oh, I just hate my life, and I just want everything to just... And God, like, what is this? This is horrible, right? I'd be listening to some podcast or something. I was just like, oh, okay. I'd have, the, you know, just this, like, face, right? Sometimes you've seen dads have this face sometimes, right? Just this, this, like, face where it seems like everything in my being is somewhere else but here. And you know what happened? Boomy, she would get herself out of bed, right? I was going to I was going to say some unflattering things. I'm not going to say that. You know, she would just come down. She would she would come down. I'm doing dishes. I have my headphones on, so I don't even know she's there. And she would just come and she would, you know, and, and she would just like tap me. And I I literally think I would think this in my head like I cannot I can't do this anymore. Like I cannot go on another second. Like I just cannot go on. She would tap me on the shoulder. She would call me the pet name, which she calls me, which I will never utter from this stage ever. And then she says, thank you for doing everything. That's exactly what she would say. She would say, thank you for doing everything. And she would just walk away. (laughs) She would just walk away and go back to bed, right? And the thing is, what would happen in my brain in that moment, just that moment right there, would I would go from I hate my life and I cannot go on one more second immediately, like instantaneously, I would go to like, this is not that bad. Right? Like, I could just, this is fine, right? I just go clean the toilets. Right? Like, I'll think, that's what I would think. And, and I'm just saying this because I want you, like, like wives, I want you to know, like, that's a testimony to the power that you have. Like, over your husband. That's how much power you have. Now, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I shouldn't have to say this, but 
I'll say it anyway. Your criticism has the opposite effect. Like, it can crush. It can crush your man. But that, that power, that encouragement and emotional nurturing, and, I, and I'll, I'll guarantee, like, all the men, we could be together, and we could just have, like, a huge encouragement sesh, you know? And it's, it's going to be, like, okay, honestly. It'll just be, like, it'll be, like, okay. We have these problems. Like, we're not great at expressing ourselves emotionally. Like, you know, we'll just, you know, we'll kind of hug or something. But, I mean, like, like, five seconds into it, right, we'll be cracking jokes. We'll be talking about the Anthony Davis trait. Like, we're just, we're just going to be talking about stuff that, that is not really emotionally satisfying. And one woman can come into that space and make all of us cry. Like saying the right things. That's just how God made it. I'm going to be 100%. Like that's just the way that God made it. And I got to say this to you because your husband's not going to say, he's not going to tell you how much that encouragement means to him. Right? As, As dead as he seems inside. When you say that, he's like, bawling in his heart he's like turned into a little baby and he it's so cathartic to him and he might just give you a little smile or just be like oh yeah thanks you know like that kind of thing but inside that is what moves him that is what keeps him going you know if your if your husband comes and kind of like you could see he's struggling and it's tough for him and he's like man it's just tough my life is tough right and look, I'm not, I'm not blaming you if you've ever said this, okay? But when you say something like, so what? That's your job. I'm, I'm telling you, man. <laughs> it's, like, it's like running a marathon, and you think you're going to get a cup of water, and you drink it, and it's just it's lemon juice. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, my gosh. I need to quit this marathon right now. Like, I need to get out right now because I can't go another step. The best way that you can love and support your husband so that he can best be positioned to succeed as a man and a husband and a father and a leader is this. Two things. And and I'm just talking about this relationship because women, you have your own ministry. You have things that you do in the church. You know, obviously, I'm only talking about in this husband-wife relationship. One, trust in God first before you trust in him. And two, just show him appreciation for what he does. That's it. So I know, like, I'm, I'm already crazy on time, but I still, I'm just, just to kind of close it, okay? The complementary, this kind of complementary relationship between men and women, it's meant to be a beautiful countercultural expression of the gospel, because the world will say, women, you know, fight for your rights. I believe 100% that men and women should have equal rights. I believe 100% that men and women are equal in value and dignity and capacity. And by the way, we should all believe that. That's clearly what's represented in Scripture. But, for example, abortion is an example of the perversion of the normal notion of rights. I saw this video where this, this pastor was having a debate with some women at an abortion rally. And... It was crazy because he actually said, like, because she was like, what about cases of rape? Right? And that's always kind of one of these. I'm just going for all the controversial stuff today. You know, but that's like one of the, she's like, what about that, right? And he said, you know what? 
if, if a man rapes a woman, I think that guy should get the death penalty. That's what he said. But then he said, but I don't think you should, you should, you should punish the baby. And then he asked the woman, he said, do you think that the man should get the death penalty? And then she was like, oh, I don't know, though. Like, the death penalty is really severe. But she had no qualms with the baby dying. And I just thought, that's nuts. That's insane. The baby didn't do anything. Right? It became clear in that moment that what was more important was the convenience of that mother, not the life. Right? Not, not justice, not rights. Because abortion does not champion the rights of children. You know, it, it, and and I'm not, I'm saying, that's a super complex issue. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be grace and love and something for that child and programs to help everybody involved. And the church should definitely be involved in all of that. But this is what happens when we adopt kind of a worldview that doesn't make sense, that God has not designed it. The gospel says... Sacrificial submission is powerful. It's powerful because, women, you are in no way inferior to any man. That, that, that's the only thing that makes it powerful. If you were in some way, in any way inferior, it wouldn't be powerful. It's only powerful because you're not in any way inferior. It's stepping in, in faith into the way that God designed it. It's how slaves in the ancient world modeled the gospel to their masters. It's how wives in the ancient world modeled the gospel to their unbelieving husbands. It's how Jesus, the king of all creation, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, modeled the gospel to an unbelieving world. He submitted himself to the will of his father. He said, I exist for the glory of my Father, and that's the humility that both men and women get to exhibit before God and that women get to model on earth before husbands in the home and male headship in the church. That's not, a, that's not something we should begrudgingly step into. That's an amazing, beautiful way that we get to be like Jesus. Men, the world says... You have to fight for your freedom. You have to assert your authority. Like, you got to hang on to that, and you got to guard that. But the gospel says, sacrificing yourself, your body, your time, your plans, your life is far more powerful than trying to assert your authority. That's how... Leaders lead their people well, not by asserting power, but by honoring those who empowered them by sacrificially serving them. That's, that's what a good leader does. It's how the apostles and disciples demonstrated their devotion to the gospel by dying for it, by being martyred for it. And it's how Jesus Christ, God himself, showed his unconditional love for an unbelieving world by going to the cross and dying for them, for us. I'll, I'll just close with this, right? Like these, I, I saw this video of these uh, women at TGC Gospel Coalition, and they were talking about complementarianism. And they were kind of like sad, basically, because they had seen that the egalitarian view had, you know, in, in, in their view had kind of distorted, you know, what, what, what God designed. And they talked about like 
basically, like, they talked about, like, ballroom dancing. You know, and they were like, you know, like, one leads and one follows. But that doesn't make one better than the other, nor does it make one, uh, like, more important than the other. Because a guy who leads by himself is not ballroom <laughs> dancing, and a woman who dances by herself also is not ballroom dancing. And if they both try to lead, then they can't do it. Right? One leads and one follows, but when I look at it, you know, when, you know, she was saying, like, when you see it together, working together, both are essential and both are necessary, though they're different roles, there's this beautiful picture of God's complementarity, the complementarity of God's design for men and women, one that exists even in the Godhead itself, Father, Son, and Spirit, and when we're able to not just begrudgingly accept, but faithfully step into God's design for men and women that has been given in the home and in the church, we can paint a beautiful, powerful picture of the gospel. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for, I mean, your word, God. Where would we be without your word? Thank you so much for your incredible sacrificial love demonstrated on the cross, Jesus. Thank you so much. You model for men what it means to be, to lead sacrificially, Lord God, to give up of ourselves for the sake of those who empower us to lead, God, for the sake of our wives, for the sake of our children, for the sake of the church, Lord God, to give our body and our soul and our time and our efforts even unto death to be able to be some some small picture, God, some incomplete picture, some shadow of Christ and the gospel, Lord. And thank you so much, Jesus, for your humble, meek submission to the will of the Father. God, that kind of incredible service, that kind of not not begrudging submission, but a glad submission, God. Thank you so much for that model that you set that women can follow in, in the home and in the church, that men and women can complementarily show, reflect, paint this beautiful picture of the gospel. God, help us as people and as families and as the church to faithfully step into that. We entrust it to you, God. We thank you so much, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray.